HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, people of color owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership of $500 value is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. This is Meant to Be on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Alicia Kennedy wears many hats. A food and drink writer originally from Long Island, Alicia's written for publications like Nylon, The New Republic, Time, and The Village Voice. She also hosts Meatless, a podcast on the culture of meat consumption, and currently writes a weekly newsletter on the goings-on of food media. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Thanks so much for having me. So, yeah, as we kind of started already, you've had a very interesting path. Um, On top of all this, you also ran a bakery at one point. Um, you've written and edited for mainstream food pubs, and now you're writing somewhat adjacently to the mainstream, not only via your newsletter, but also from San Juan. So can we first start with that? What brought you to Puerto Rico? I mean, I wish it was a, a more interesting story or had literally <laughs> anything to do with food, but I moved, I, I've been writing about the food scene here for a few years, since 2015, so five years now, which is wild. But I I fell in love uh, and I I moved here. So it, it's not like a big dramatic, you know, story. It's not really about writing or food at, at all. Uh, <laughs> um, but it definitely affects how I write about food and how I write about climate change and how I write about politics now. So it's definitely changed uh, my, my life mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I had um, Andrew Junang on the show a few weeks ago, who also writes a weekly newsletter and also moved to um, actually Hong Kong for him because um, he fell in love and his partner has a job there. But um, what have you found that living in and writing from San Juan has kind of afforded your your perspective on the whole uh, American culinary scene? Well, it's definitely very different. Like I wrote last week about Taste the Nation, Padma Lakshmi's new show on Hulu. And I mean, I think I would have had this perspective whether I was still living in New York um, or whether I was here. But I think having like a very distinctly 
uh, a very distinct experience of being outside of the United States helps me see exactly how bizarre and <laughs> provincial and kind of um, how focused on nationalism and empire the United States is. And so that mm -hmm. definitely affects my critique of mainstream U.S. food culture and, and politics. And um, obviously also, you know, most of the food here is imported, almost 90%, and that's a direct result of U.S. colonialism. And so basically everything I eat, everything I drink is also affected by these things. So. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it definitely changes everything about what I do. Um, it also, uh, to be real for any freelance writers listening, the, you know, the cost of rent is, is lower than in Brooklyn. And so that, mm -hmm. that makes a huge difference in my ability to focus on my work and to maybe, you know, I, I've, this year I've kind of pivoted toward more political magazines like the new republic like time like in these times uh, i'm writing a piece for the nation right now so i've i've really changed my focus the focus of my work to be less explicitly food driven and to be more uh, politics and culture driven with a a deep grounding in food and and food systems so it's it's definitely allowed me the space to make that change to my career that i definitely wanted to make you know, in New York, in Brooklyn, I was bartending and writing before I moved here, um, and it was really exhausting. So, mm -hmm. it, it's it's just a whole different lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so what what's kept you writing in or from you know this this broken system we call food media? But I guess <laughs> you've pivoted now. But what what kept you for so long in it? I mean, I love food. Food is just simply the language that I have I, and use, and uh, I find it such a rich means of talking about everything um and so launching my newsletter has been really great for me because it's i can i can reference all these things that i wouldn't have been able to if i were writing for a straight up food magazine you know like i can talk about works of literature i can reference like old art criticism i can um I can talk about politics explicitly. Um, I can talk about academic work in food studies and, and that sort of thing, which I definitely, I was not in most of my, most of the outlets that I've written for, I was not able to make all those connections. Um, often when I was allowed to do those things, like the, the magazines quickly folded. Um, I had a food column <laughs> for, um, for a British place called How We Get to Next, which was amazing and I think really, set me up to make this shift in my work. Um, I was the columnist there for about six months. And, you know, I wrote for Nylon, a vegan column. And my editor there, Kristen Iverson, who's since moved on to Refinery29, um, really allowed me to talk about anything I wanted in, in terms of veganism. You know, I wrote about anarchism through zines and, and that sort of thing. And I also used to write for The Village Voice, which was it was, you know, at the end of its its lifespan, it was not as radical as it was known to be um, in its beginnings and in some of its other incarnations, but it was still a place that was the alternative um, in New York. And so I've always found my, my happy place as a writer, I guess, in places that allowed me to be more of a broad culture writer than to be just like, here's a recipe or here's, you know, something else. Like right now I find it, I, I mean, I, as I said, I'm kind of shifting my, my 
where, who, what kind of a writer I am. And it is really nice and freeing to not take assignments that are, you know, super in group, like focused on like, you know, recipes or ingredients. Though I love those things and I do those things a lot for a website called Tenderly where I'm a contributor um, and I write, you know, recipes and reading lists and that sort of thing. And I'm able to like really hone in on the, you know, the beauty and accessibility and, you know, inherent um, radical nature of veganism there. Um, mm -hmm. But for the most part, like my writing now is less like, here's a chef, here's a restaurant, here's a dish. And that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> mm -hmm. It makes me feel more like a whole person, um, especially as we're in this big reckoning in terms of like, what is a restaurant? What re function does a restaurant serve? Like, you know, we've had this moment to step back from restaurants even existing. And so now it's like, hey, what do these places give us? Like, are we centering the workers? Like, what are what are new models that that people can shift to in order to you know provide more to their communities and to provide more for their workers and i i love that that shift and i'm super excited to experience it and write about that shift but the way restaurants have existed in the past is just not something that's compelling to me anymore like i, I never want to write a guide to where to eat and drink in a neighborhood <laughs> or a city ever again like I just don't <laughs> and I and God willing I will never have to do that but at the same time it's like it's an interesting time for sure to be to be a food writer but it's an especially interesting time to I think um, broaden one's definition of what a food writer can do mm -hmm. yeah it sounds like you've pivoted on multiple fronts not only are you changing who you're pitching to, but I'm also kind of leaning more heavily on, on the newsletter writing, which I feel like a lot of writers around us are starting to do. So can you kind of talk about newsletters um, as your form and what it what it um, does for you that, you know, like you said, like those recipe roundups or restaurant roundups don't do for you? It just allows me to write whatever I want to write and not, you know, be, you know, no editor is like, oh, hey, I don't think this is a good idea. Um, actually, it's funny because as of tomorrow, like my newsletter that goes out tomorrow will be on translation, which is a topic I, I used to write about in terms of literature a lot. And so mm -hmm. I was really excited to write about it in terms of food media. And also it's going to be the first one um, that he did. Well, it's technically going to be the second one, but um, he did from Mark Bittman, the, the food site on Medium is going to start syndicating two of my newsletters per month as of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So like, um, but it's different from how it would be if I were pitching them on, on these stories or these essays, you know, because I get to decide what I'm writing about. Like I get final veto power on the edits, but at the same time, they're giving me some financial support and the editorial support, you know, that, you know, I, before this, if I felt like I was having a naughty editorial problem with one of my newsletters, I'd have to just like bother my friends who are writers and be like, uh, can you look at this and make sure I'm not, um, you know, writing anything that's going to ruin my career. But um, so now, um, or that doesn't make sense or, you know, whatever. But now I have a little bit of support in that way, but it's kind of in a very independent way still. And so yeah, writing the newsletter, it gives me space to kind of just have a weekly column without, you know, the, the fear that the magazine or my editor is going to like shift uh, perspectives or something like that. Like, 
I, I've worked for Edible Brooklyn twice in the last few years, and they've let me go two times, <laughs> um, despite like, you know, we t- can talk about this all day, but like media jobs are sort of based on nothing these days in terms mm-hmm. of like, you can be driving so much traffic to the site and they'll still lay you off and, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. So. Yeah. With the newsletter, I don't have that fear. Like I would have to lay myself off, you know, um, mm-hmm. and that that's given me so much freedom. And and people have responded so incredibly well to it in a way that I didn't expect at all. And I just really appreciate that that I am having like a, a far more personal and organic and like intimate experience with who my audience is right now than I have ever had before. And Mm -hmm. it's really shocking to me, but that it would happen like with this, that it wouldn't happen with something that, you know, I was writing for a big publication. But at the same time, it's not that surprising because on the, in the newsletter, I'm allowed to have like express my full voice, as I've said. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, the expression of my full voice plus like getting total control and, and being able to really engage with the audience, um, makes it so worthwhile. And it's for me, like right now, it's my anchor gig in terms of, of like finances. And so it's just really, it's somehow it's worked out. I didn't anticipate this at all. Um, and so it's funny because I, I did an interview recently, like specifically about um, writers doing newsletters and they were like, you know, what was your plan with this? And I was like, I literally had no plan. Um, mm-hmm. And it just kind of worked out. <laughs> but it's a great space. And, and I, I encourage people because even if you're not going to like get that much money for it or, or even if you're um, not going to maybe post regularly or something like that, I think that having the space to express your full voice and express your full concerns and, and be able to like reference the things that you want to reference that, you know, an editor at a mainstream outlet is going to be like, uh, I, I don't think this is a timely or compelling reference. And so can we take this out? And, you know, but that, but it's meaningful to, as a writer to show like all the work that has influenced your thinking. And so I feel like that's been the most um, important part of it for me is that I, mm-hmm. I'm allowed to show the full scape of what I read and who informs not just my thinking, but also like my prose style. And so the, it's it's something that I, I want to talk about more in terms of food writing because I feel like it's so stylistically um, boring. But at the same time, yeah, just having a newsletter allows people, it allows space to be your full self. And I think it's super worthwhile, whether you're going to make money off of it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, all perfect segue into um, what I want to talk about next. But first, we're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of the U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production, with over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. 
Okay, so um, last week, the James Beer Foundation held an online panel between Tunde Wei and John T. Edge, both writers. Um, the latter is also the director of Southern Foodways. And it was moderated by Jamila Robinson, who herself is a food editor for um, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And so listening to that talk, it like instantly got memed in my head as John T is media, the, the structure, the system. Jamila is someone that's not white trying to exist in the system. And Tunde is um, like you and I, someone who is really struggling to, to express ourselves within, within the system. And um, we don't know how to without you know, necessarily dismantling it. Um, so I wanted to get your, your um, thoughts on it. What, what were your takeaways from this talk? Ooh, so <laughs> that talk was so intense. It wasn't, it was so short, but it was so intense. And I think every person watching it was like, oh my Lord. So, so yeah, my feelings there, like Tunde is someone who I reference constantly, who I'm constantly like, look at this example of someone who shakes the tree of food media and somehow is everyone is still kind of lapping up his thoughts no matter how mm. much he tells them literally like you know that most of these people only have any value in this system because they're white and that's literally it like it's like um and so when he was talking to john and and was basically repeating over and over again you need to give up your power you need to give up your power I thought that that was so important for so many people to see because, of course, there are going to be people who are going to look at that and say, oh, he's just, you know, can he say anything else? How, like, isn't there a way to reform this magazine and this system and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, absolutely, I, to watch someone be so relentless in saying, no, there is no fixing the system without changes in who is in power was so cathartic, I think, for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, yeah, the Southern Foodways Alliance being run for the last, you know, whatever, however many years, 20 years by a white dude who believes in what he called gradualism and mm -hmm, to yeah. insulting, insultingly define that gradualism as like, like black people will not be able to edit other black people until like he's comfortable with it. That was like basically his definition of gradualism. It was... Uh, it was important for it to have that platform with the James Beard Foundation, but at the same time, you know, uh, I also think that the James Beard Foundation, despite what it says about what it's trying to change in its practices to be more inclusive, is still like such a, and they're aware of this, and, and they openly say it, and I respect them for, for being open about it, but it, you know, it's it's an organization that is built on the same kind of prestige that, you know, John T. Edge is a fearful of letting go of. And mm -hmm. so it's, it's not just dismantling structures of power, but it's also about dismantling our notions of what success looks like. Um, I talked to Korsha Wilson about this for my newsletter last week, which is like, if everyone still has the same definition of success in an ever shrinking field, uh, in terms of food media and, 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 and that sort of thing, then there's always going to be this struggle to not just um, make a profit because it's a capitalist industry, but also, you know, with, with who gets to call the shots and, and that sort of thing and who gets to reap the benefits of that, you know, um, profit. Um, and yeah, I, I thought that that talk was so important for making that explicit 
um, because I don't think it had been explicit to some, a lot of people in that way. But at the same time, you know, until John Edge gives up his power, until a lot of other people in food media who have powerful positions say, you know what, I'm going to let, I'm going to step back and I'm going to let someone else come in here. There's not going to be any real change to the way that, that food media works. Like the, the same people are going to be shut out um, until there's like a, a much bigger, not just a bigger shift in who's in power, but also a bigger shift in how, how success and is defined and, and not in capitalist terms, like, because mm-hmm. that's ultimately going to um, be the, 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 the winner in terms of what gets most, becomes most important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the the gradualism because that especially stuck with me the moment where he was like, like um, anyone of like any black person like can't has to start by writing personal stories and then you know they can work on reported stories and then they can write what they want to write about and it's like why not just just cut right there you know if you yeah. want to see change, um, but but to be real, I feel like. Um, we, or perhaps because now you have the newsletter, you have a, you have an alternate, but maybe I, I think I'm in the position of Jamila where I'm in an editorial position and, you know, what are we to do? Like if we get out the way, but if people, still people um, above us are not to get out of the way, then, you know, perhaps it's for, for, for nothing. And so how would you, as someone on the outside, like see how we can pave the voices, um, pave the way for other voices or what are we to do, you know? Oof. I mean, it's so hard because I really do think that the way food writing and food media is set up, and this is why I've been writing for other kinds of outlets and also for myself, is just, it's just too tokenizing of any story outside its main purview, you know, like the, you'll see a story on food and wine and maybe it'll be written by a black writer and it'll be a great story, but the, the social, the framing mm-hmm. and the headline is going to be something like, will Americans finally accept Haitian food as American food? And it's like, well, who cares? Like, why is that the framing for this? You know, and I don't see that changing too much, especially because not to talk about Taste the Nation again, but like people- No, this is perfect. I wanted to finish on that. So let's let's get into that. (laughs) (laughs) So this show like is set up for that. It's set up for that, that false idea that if a white, the white population of the United States likes your food enough, then you also get to be essentially white. Because, I mean, let's, you know, to, by any stretch, like the definition of, of someone who gets to really embody everything that the United States represents, you know, that is always going to be a white person. Like this is, and I referenced in my um, newsletter, Krishnandu Ray's, um, the ethnic restaurateur, which goes into deep, deep detail about how immigrant cuisines are either assimilated into because of the whiteness of the immigrant population skin. Um, they're assimilated into what it, we call American food. And if they are the, if these uh, immigrant populations are not white, like Mexican and Chinese immigrants who have been in the United States for, you know, over a century, but and they're, the food is ubiquitous. The food is, you know, in the freezer section. The food is, like, in everywhere in the mall. But at the same time, like, they don't... Mexican and, and Chinese populations aren't understood fully 
as American because everyone's always going to be like, oh, hey, where, where are you from? Like that, you know, that's the essential mm-hmm. question of like othering in the United States. It's like, where are you from? And it's like, no, but where really, where are you from? And so like um, that, you know, that you can't just eat that away. Like literally you can't just like eat enough tacos to the point that we have a non-militarized border with Mexico. Like that's just not going to happen. And and that was the perspective that Taste the Nation gave. It it really defined people by their labor. It defined people by their food. Um, it suggested that food has a real political value only insofar as it can be assimilated into white American culture. And uh, yeah, it was just really, you know, nationalist in a way that made me uh, that I thought was just really dated. Like I thought it was an Obama era anachronism that we would talk about, you know, citizenship and the nation in this way when, you know, the, this, this isn't, the, there's no real evidence to back up these claims other than, mm-hmm. you know, um, Irish people became American, like Italians became American. And it's like, Hey, what do all these people have in common? You know? Um, so I just, yeah, I found the show so shallow and superficial. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I actually haven't seen it, but um, I, I read your newsletter and I've, I've read or I heard that interview that Eater did with Padma. And so from what I gather, it's um, Padma is like Anthony Bourdain goes to various cities and eats like the secretly um, quintessential food of that region. And then talks about why you know it's underrepresented um but you it's so so sticky like you you write about um assimilationist thinking in your newsletter and you know this is back to what you were speaking of but but as this is you know used as a tool for survival within these communities so how do you how do you break the cycle of looking for white acceptance um from the outside even you dismantle capitalism I suppose. Mm. Right. (laughs) Um, I don't know. That's my answer to everything. But um, I think, yeah, you have to get out. Same as like the way you fix food media is you get out of these these ways of thinking that uh, that assign value and worth to anyone's work or anyone's food or anyone's labor uh, by, you know, what it does for other people, you know, and I think, I, you know, I, I mentioned in passing and that that like Padma mentioned that the Gullah Geechee people, their food, their red rice should be understood as like for its contributions to Southern American cuisine. And it's like, no, like there's a way for everyone to, you know, coexist with their traditions and with their cuisines without, you know, overvaluing them for what they're they give to other what other people can extract from them you know Mm -hmm. and that's I think a key point that I also talked about is that the show and also other other writing on this topic has kind of equated Americanization with corporatization and once a foodstuff is available kind of frozen or you know uh in a fast food form, Mm -hmm. then it's officially like American. And I Mm -hmm. think that that is so key too, is like Mm -hmm. things, the only value that the nation as, as the show defines it, understands is market value. And um, I think getting away from that is the only way to uh, 
get away also from the assimilationist thinking. Um, because, you know, the idea shouldn't be to assimilate and disappear into American culture. Like the idea should be, it, you know, against the melting pot that we were all taught in school in the US. And it should be like, no, we're just uh, all people who have, you know, various cuisines, various traditions, and we can all learn from each other and we can all enjoy each other's food without assigning value to how much we can kind of, I don't know, take from it or disappear the people who make it and that sort of thing. And I, I've also written about like those t-shirts that I know Jose Andres loves called that how they say like immigrants feed America or something like that. And it's like, I think that that was also like a big aspect of Taste the Nation where it was like, hey, look, like, you know, immigrants feed you every day and like, they're cool. They're all right. Like, you know, you don't have to hate them. And I'm just like, dude, like <laughs> one racists want immigrants to be uh, invisible and mm. they don't want to know this and they don't really care. Like, like to, you know, where I grew up on Long Island, it's like, yeah, like a person can deliver your food and you can think you're superior to them because that's also how our society is set up, that the people who make the food and bring the food to you are like not as worthy as, as other people in society uh, who have more like white collar jobs and that sort of thing. So I don't know. It's all just a false idea of what the United States um, offers people. And it's also a false idea of what the value is of people's food and what the value is of, you know, a human being and what the value is of a cuisine and, and that sort of thing, you know, like, um, I, I just think to measure cuisines by their adaptability uh, to US market capitalism is uh, a, a bad way of doing so. And, and I understand that, like, I, I say this from a huge amount of privilege as I was born on Long Island, like I'm you know, I, I am a human melting pot. And so like, um, I, I don't have to come at this from a place of like, uh, I want acceptance for, for my food and for who I am. But at the same time, I think it's false for Padma to do a show that suggests that food is some sort of route to acceptance. Um, mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be a route to acceptance, you know, like our, our policy should be a, a route to humane, um, hum, you know, it should be a route to human rights um, through policy, not through not through food. It doesn't matter mm -hmm. whether someone likes your food or not if they respect you. I think I, I think you know we should all be able to not like something and and, and still love the people who have, yeah. who have made it. Um, yeah. No. I actually I, I want to keep I can't get over the fact that. Um, Padma is the one that hosted this and wrote it and, you know, did the research for this or whatever. And like in hearing her talk about the show, um, she was saying like it's really significant or it's important to her because um, it's a woman that's hosting the show and also a woman of color who's hosting the show and that she gets to be herself um, doesn't have to be like this buttoned up version of herself that isn't really herself that you see on Top Chef. And so like, you know, understandably from her side, it's like she's trying to do a lot with the show, but, you know, she is, like you say, like kind of on the sinking ship. Like there's no way to have made that show good. Um, so again, maybe like if we follow the, the through line, um, Padma is Jamila and how should Padma like exist within this system? Can she even? Right. I, don't, I mean, I'm not a reformist. I don't think that you could reform broken 
neoliberal mm-hmm. systems and, and make them work for everybody. I think they were set up to be exclusionary and they'll continue to be exclusionary. Um, but, and I, I understand Padma's point of view that like this was a place for her to be a different kind of host of a show and that sort of thing. And I, I respect that completely. Um, and I think, you know, she, as a host is a is a warm and and charismatic figure but i do think that the premise of the show was kind of inherently flawed in terms of how much it stake it places in uh u.s nationalism Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so to finish, um, when we, well, I guess you're, you're you're in a special case, but when we live, breathe, eat, write, or whatever within America, how can our work be celebrated for anything other than in service to, or from within, you know, American values? Whew, that's a huge question. But I think that, um, I mean, for me, it's funny because yeah, you like I'm technically outside of the United States, but I'm in a colony of the United States. Mm-hmm. So like I inherently am writing from the perspective of US, the US and United States as an empire. And so for me, that is what extends into how I can write about food and how I can live outside of it. And also, you know, I've been taking a lot of inspiration lately from Angela Davis, who's enjoying a popular resurgence. And she has such a global perspective in in how she writes and what she writes and what, how she speaks and who she references. And that's, I think, something we can aspire to even in food writing is to be global. And um, this is also what I write, I'm writing about for my newsletter tomorrow, which will also be published on Heated, which is translation and how much translation would change food media if we were engaging with people who maybe don't speak English or maybe don't write in English or maybe don't write well in English, you know? And, and so we could actually... Um, engage with people talking about their food and talking about their culture on their terms rather than um, always through the lens of the United States and always through the lens of English um, mm-hmm. and always through the lens of also a diaspora like English speaking diasporas in the United States or in the UK kind of owning the conversation around their countries of um, ancestry and I think that that's so significant if, if we actually could change that a little bit. And so, um, yeah, my, my thinking on that is just be more global in reading, in, in social media, also in thinking, and, and, and don't let editors um, beat that out of your writing, you know? It, mm-hmm. it just be global and unapologetic about it. And if editors don't like it, go somewhere else. <laughs> I mean, you know, media is dying. Like there's somewhere mm-hmm. else to write. You can write for yourself also. And frankly, like, I, as I said, like I thought people wouldn't be as into me writing independently for a newsletter, but they're way more into it than they ever were um, when I was writing for publications. So mm-hmm. there's always space. Um, and I think that uh, food writing should take to heart the protest and con- broader political and cultural conversations that are happening and and apply them to, you know, what can be a very kind of myopic uh, sector of, of culture writing. Mm-hmm. So for those who can't or who have not yet subscribed to your newsletter, how can they find you? It's aliciakennedy.substack.com slash subscribe. Uh, And I'm on Instagram, Alicia D. Kennedy, and Twitter, Alicia Kennedy. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alicia. Thank you so much for having (laughs) me.
meant to be eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.